Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and in this segment of our program, we're talking about Catholic culture and more specifically, Catholic architecture. In the second part of the program, I'm going to be talking to Christian LeBlanc, who's a Catholic architect, about what Catholic churches should actually look like and what Catholic churches are for. Before we get there, though, I would like to talk a little bit about some of the experiences I've had with Catholic architecture and how it has actually changed my life. I can remember that when I was visiting in England, I first of all went to some of the beautiful old churches that you see over there, some of the beautiful old cathedrals, and they changed my life. Having grown up in America, I had never experienced these magnificent ancient buildings and the beauty and the awesomeness of the architecture, the beauty and the awesomeness of the height and the breadth, uh, so many details of art and, and beauty within them. And I was immediately taken by them and, and entranced by them. And I began to wonder how they got there and how they were built and began to study, therefore, uh, European history a bit more and see how these beautiful buildings actually came to be. One of the things which lodged in my mind and in my memory was not just the visit to the cathedrals and churches that were still standing, but some of the ruins in England of the beautiful Benedictine monasteries that had been destroyed under the time of Henry VIII. I went to one which is in Glastonbury, Glastonbury Abbey in the western part of England. As I walked around the ruins, skeletal walls still standing, the images of stained glass windows that used to be and just a few frames left or just a few arches left of the stained glass windows that were once there. And when I went into the guest facilities later, the visitor's center, I saw there a display about building the monasteries and the great architecture and the craft work that went into them. And there was a little saying there by the architect of Glastonbury Abbey. Nobody knows who he was. It was nearly a thousand years ago, but he recorded in his journal as he was drawing up the plans for this great monastic church, I want to build a church that will cause even the most hardened heart to kneel in prayer. Now, that was his reason for building the church. And that lodged in my memory, and I remembered that, well, for the rest of my life. He understood that the purpose of that church was to inspire even the most hardened heart to kneel in prayer. Well, let's fast forward the story a little bit and visit a church, I'm afraid a Catholic church in America, built within the last 50 years or so. You're very likely to go into a church which resembles perhaps a big circus tent, but in brick and stone. It might seat a thousand people all in a fan-shaped seating arrangement. It's centered around the altar. It has soft lighting and carpets. In many ways, it's very useful. It's a useful church that people come into to attend Mass, to hear a homily, to hear the music, and then to go out into the world. How often do you go into a Catholic church like that and you say, this church is beautiful. I want to kneel in prayer because this building is so inspiring. Why does it not happen in these modern churches? And yet it did happen in those old churches over in France and Italy and England and the rest of Europe? Is it because for some reason those churches are just older and therefore they feel more holy? Is it because we're away from home and we visit those churches and we go into them and we, we have a sense of something special that we can't really put our finger on? Or is there something about the architecture itself which inspires us to pray? The architect of Glastonbury Abbey a thousand years ago believed that that was the case. He said clearly, that's why I'm building this church. I want to build a church that is so beautiful that inspires even the hardest heart to prayer. Why did an architect a thousand years ago believe that? 
But obviously, an architect who's building now doesn't really seem to understand that that's part of the reasoning for a church building. Well, I think it's because the entire understanding of what church is has also shifted. Back in the Middle Ages, an architect was building a church as a temple for God. It was the place where God dwelled. It was the place where he actually lived, where the divine presence was, where the divine presence of the Eucharist was kept in the tabernacle. It's the place where Mass was celebrated, where the divine presence was made real, day by day and hour by hour. It was not essentially a place for the faithful to gather. It was not essentially a meeting room or a preaching house or an auditorium. It was essentially God's house, the place where he dwelt, the place where the divine presence was. And so the church was built accordingly, according to principles of beauty and with no expense spared to make it as beautiful as possible, to make it as long-lasting as possible, to make it as inspiring as possible. What are some of the elements which made that church beautiful Well, first of all, it was built according to the classical principles of what we call the golden mean. Back in ancient times, the architects discovered the principles that would make any building or work of art beautiful or harmonious. They were principles of proportion. These buildings were designed according to this golden mean, according to these principles, so that when you go into them, you actually feel harmonious, you feel peaceful. There was something beautiful about it simply by its design. That's why when you go into one of these ancient buildings, you can't even put your finger on it, but you feel that there's something about it which is beautiful. The second thing is the building itself has an inner integrity. That is to say that the elements of the architecture do what they seem to be doing. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when you see a pillar, the pillar is holding up the arch, and the arch is holding up the wall above it. The windows are in the wall to provide light. Every element in the architecture actually does what it seems to be doing. In other words, it has integrity. Very often when you go into a modern building, there will be arches, there will be pillars, there will be these traditional architectural features, but they don't do anything. The whole structure is held up by steel on the outside, and the arches and the pillars are really just ornamental features. We look at them, we might not think about it, but we sense that they're not actually real. We sense that they're not doing what they should be doing. Therefore, the building gives us a sense of artificiality. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't have integrity. The older churches, the pillars had to hold up the arches, which had to hold up the walls. Therefore, when we go into those buildings, we sense that there is an integrity about every architectural element. Thirdly, not only was the church built with these classical proportions, not only was the church built with an inner integrity, but in addition to this, the church is built out of local materials, real materials. It's built with stone, it's built with brick, it's built with tiles that are made from from the clay that's mined locally. It's got marble in it from the local marble quarry up the road. And because the materials are actually local, because they have integrity in themselves, they have a solidity and a reality to them in a way that a lot of modern buildings don't. A lot of the modern buildings that we have are built with a steel structure on the outside, and and then we put a cladding outside that to make it look nice, and inside we have plasterboard or some kind of cladding on the inside to make it secure and to make it watertight. But these buildings, especially when they're large buildings like churches, don't have that same integrity and that same permanence to them that the more traditional buildings did. Why are we talking about all of this? Why does it matter? 
It matters because there are certain features of architecture, there are certain features of the way a building is built, which actually echo and communicate to us certain principles. If the building is built, as I say, with the first principle of these proportions, which are pleasing and harmonious, we experience the sense of permanence and the sense of reality, the sense of harmony that these buildings evoke and produce within our hearts and minds. When there's an inner integrity to the building, that is, the pillars hold up the arches which hold up the walls, we sense that there's an integrity about our belief. There's an integrity and a reality to what we actually hold to be true. When the buildings are built out of real materials from the real locality and the real solid things that we build with, we also sense that the church is built to last. And like our faith, therefore, it's going to last. I say all of that to say this. The old architect said that a church was a sermon in stone. That is to say that a Catholic church actually proclaims the Catholic faith. The Catholic church is a witness to the community. The Catholic Church stands there as a building with integrity, as a building with beauty, as a building with permanence. Why? Because the Catholic faith has integrity. The Catholic faith has truth. The Catholic faith has beauty. The Catholic faith is permanent. Therefore, if we build a Catholic Church which is flimsy, which is just useful, we're not actually witnessing to the beauty, the truth, and the permanence of our Catholic faith. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In just a few moments, we're going to talk to Christian LeBlanc, who is himself an architect, who's built several churches, who's worked with the Catholic Church, and he has some interesting insights to take us deeper into this fascinating aspect of Catholic culture, which is Catholic architecture. Why not connect with Father Longenecker every day through his popular blog, Standing on My Head? Why the weird title? Because G.K. Chesterton said, a scene is most often more clearly seen when it is seen upside down. In Standing on My Head, Father Longenecker writes on current issues, blogs about the faith, and entertains with his wacky alter egos, inspiring us to stand firm in our Catholic faith, a faith which stands the world on its head. This is More Christianity, and I'm your host, Father Dwight Longenecker. In this segment of our program, we're talking about Catholic culture, and more specifically, Catholic architecture. In the first part of the program, I spoke about the question, what is a church actually for? And my guest now is Catholic architect Christian LeBlanc. Christian, where did this famous phrase, form follows function, come from? That saying by Louis Sullivan, who was a, an American architect, he practiced in the latter half of the 19th century. And what did it mean to him? I think Louis Sullivan, probably like a lot of architects in his day, were chafing a little bit at the endless series of architectural revivals that were coming uh -huh. up in that day. What, what do you mean by architectural revivals? Well, historically speaking, a lot of what dry has driven architecture is the invention of new structural systems. Uh -huh. And once Gothic architecture with the pointed arch had been invented, there really wasn't anything that followed that of a structural nature to cause architecture to revise in response to that. So after Gothic, much of what followed from that were different ways of, of applying existing architectures to new buildings. Okay, so the revival was they, they were basically using old styles of architecture. Yeah. They were trying to do them in new ways. This fellow Sullivan got tired of that. A little bit, yes. With, with the advent of, of steel as being a, a framing element in lieu of stone, then it liberated architects from a lot of the spans and dimensional limits that were applied to stone. In the old days, an architect had to build an arch to hold up a wall, 
and that arch had to be built out of stone. And the structure, therefore, and the forms of, of how the building was built was reliant on what held the walls up. And now steel was doing the job. Yes. In other okay. words, there's a lot more potential for what you could do. Now, you, know, you could do certain things with wood back in the day as well, but there were limits to that as well. One of the nice things that steel enabled people to do is to say to make a building a dozen stories tall, 15 stories tall, things like that too. Uh-huh. So there was a lot of flux. Not I mean, it was just an architectural world, but a lot of a, a lot of flux and change. I think in in culture in the West and people like Louis Sullivan were saying, look, there's a new way for us to think about buildings. Partly because we just are are kind of bored with doing the same old thing over and over again. Partly because we have these new structural ways of of doing things that we don't need to be cladding them in the gingerbread of a, of an old architecture. So steel and the new technologies brought about a new way of thinking about buildings. Basically, beginning what? If if I were to date it, I would say probably around 1880 in Chicago, which is where Louis Sullivan practiced. Okay, yes. so, so 1880s. But even in his day, Louis Sullivan and saying form follows function. It wasn't as though he he had sleek, surfaceless buildings with no interest for the human being. It was just that the the, the sourcing of that didn't spring from we're going to copy Gothic or we're going to copy Romanesque or that sort of thing. And so how did this, we'll call it a modernist Mm -hmm. approach to uh, architecture, how do you think this influenced the design of, of church buildings? Churches didn't start to change that much in the United States due to these new techniques um, until after World War II. And at that point, I think there were a whole lot of people coming back, and there was a lot of change in in the country. And so an awful lot of buildings were being built in the new way, what we might call the international style. Uh, A steel frame structure. Yes. And and then adapted accordingly. Yes, lots of big expanses of glass, things like that. Mm -hmm. The wall doesn't necessarily hold up the building. The steel holds it up. Right. So the outside (laughs) of the wall could be almost nothing but glass if you wanted it to be, for example. Uh, This is very interesting because... In fact, there are churches that were then built like that. I'm thinking of the Crystal Cathedral out in California, which is now a Catholic cathedral. Is yes. that built in this way, a steel structure with, with glass walls? Yes. Usually the technical term for that would be a curtain wall in the sense that a curtain doesn't really support anything except itself. Right. With a curtain wall, you can have wall-to-wall glass if that's what you want. And, of course, there were things being built in the 30s and 40s that were wall-to-wall glass. So in the old days, mm-hmm. before all of this happened, churches were built in a, we'll say, a traditional way, that the walls were structural. There was no possibility for glass walls. I suppose, actually, the great churches like Gothic churches like Saint-Chapelle and uh, Notre Dame in Paris, they were pretty close to glass walls in as much as they had so much stained glass there. Yes, that's the glory of, of Gothic architecture compared to its predecessor, Romanesque architecture. And most architectures that preceded Gothic architectures that with a pointed arch, they were able to figure out that they could, instead of actually building very heavy, thick walls to hold the roof up, and then you could only afford to put little tiny windows to mm-hmm. interrupt that structural integrity, you could build a building which was simply, effectively had no walls. A Gothic church essentially is simply a series of piers uh-huh. which go up very, very high, and then they, they leap across with their flying the distance buttresses. With their, yes, and the buttresses hold it up all from the outside, so instead of having all that stone piled up into the wall and pinching down your window space, all that supporting stone is piled up outside of the building and pushing up against the walls. I'm talking to Christian LeBlanc, who's an, an architect, and I can see he's getting all excited about the, the theories behind Gothic architecture, and it really is exciting. And if you've been to those cathedrals and those churches in Europe, as I know you have, you see them and it's just you just gasp with wonder because of not only the beauty of the building, but the beauty of the engineering and the design. And there it is, still standing a thousand years later. 
Am I right that you find this kind of exciting? Yes. It's so exhilarating to go, especially into a, into a Gothic building. It's just in my, my little opinion is that there's nothing more exhilarating or expressive of the human being's effrontery at flinging stone 150 feet up into the air like that <laughs> as what was done in the 1100s, which, of course, was a very long time ago. And doesn't it really kill you when people say things like, oh, the Middle Ages, they were the Dark Ages, you know, when humanity was benighted and stumbling along with the Black Plague and there was not much more to do? Not, not really, because here is one of the most glorious examples of human achievement with Gothic architecture. That's right. And really, again, this is just my opinion, but there is no, no architecture since the Gothic period has risen above what Gothic is. And all springing, of course, from our Catholic faith. Yes. Now, let's go back a little bit and talk about the modern age, how the new technologies changed the way we built buildings. It had to affect the way we built church buildings as well. And so here we are struggling with the Christian religion and Christian believers who just have an instinct that they want their churches to feel old-fashioned and look like a church. And they don't really know what that means, except they know that it looks like a church or it doesn't. And the modern architects are coming through and saying, we can do something exciting and different now. How did it go over? Was it a success? Personally, I don't think it was. And I would say that even long before I was an architect, even when I was a child, I guess most human beings simply don't respond well to the aesthetics of of modern architecture. But why is that? Well, I think part of it is that people are looking for timelessness when they come to God. I mean, one of the primary things, I suppose, about God is that he doesn't change. And to some extent, people yearn for that continuity, that eternal continuity that God has, and they would like to see that continuity expressed in God's architecture. Right. So they want continuity with the past and with the tradition. Let me ask your opinion about the theory that we sense beauty through these classical proportions, this thing called the golden mean. How would you explain the golden mean to me? You're the architecture professor. I'm the student. What is the golden mean? Basically, the the golden mean, as it can be used architecturally, is simply a proportion. If we take a rectangle, the rectangle would have the proportion of, of, say, 10 feet long and 16 feet in the other direction, or it could be 10 inches by 16 inches. As long as that relationship of about 1 to 1.6, which is a natural relationship, is maintained, then you can use it in every aspect of building to generate your rhythms, to generate hierarchy of things as they diminish, as they go up, elements of your floor plan. It repeats over and over and over again. Gothic architecture especially was driven by geometry. They really didn't have mathematics yet in the way that we understand mathematics. Mm -hmm. So a whole lot of it was generated by these mathematical proportions as to how wide the building could be compared to how tall it was, things like that. You can find uh, drawings of Gothic churches where where an artist has superimposed for your benefit all the iterations of the Mm -hmm. golden section showing up in the elevations and the plans and things like that. These classical mathematical proportions of beauty were determined by, I suppose, the Greeks, to start with the Greeks and Romans, and they worked out, this is the theory, certain kind of proportions for building, which just feels beautiful to a human being. Do you think that's true, or is that just a hogwash? Oh, no, goodness, that's absolutely true. I mean, the truth is, is I use the golden mean even in everyday architecture. And it's something that wasn't really confected by the Greeks so much as it was discovered by the Greeks because it's based on the Fibonacci series, which is something that occurs in nature, the spirals of shells and so forth. And The they, what series did you call that? Oh, I'm sorry, Fibonacci. The Fibonacci. That's the, yeah, that's the Italian that, that gave, it, gave it that particular it's name. It's so great talking to an expert. I'm talking with Christian LeBlanc, who's an architect, about the influence of architecture in our, in our Catholic faith. So you say that this golden mean, this intrinsically pleasing proportion to a building 
actually comes from the proportions of nature itself. Yes, yes. And I think that's one reason why people respond to it in a natural way. It, in some way, it connects in a way that human beings don't understand to fundamentals of nature. It feels harmonious. Yes. Right. Yes. So, therefore, when you go into, say, one of these Gothic cathedrals or a Romanesque monastery, for that matter, a Byzantine church, one of these older churches where the old architects were really wedded to this golden mean idea— you go into the building and you say to yourself, this is beautiful, even if you don't know why it's beautiful. That's right, because it's within, I think, the human soul to perceive the, the beauty in these natural proportions without being conscious of them. Okay. Now, is it possible, therefore, to build a church according to the golden mean using modern materials? Oh, goodness, yes. Right. Yes, people still use it. Okay. And so it's still used for designing churches. And other buildings, too. And other buildings, mm-hmm. to make them pleasing in this deeper way. Yes. I mean, it's simply a way of, of, of organizing a building. Right. What are the faults, therefore, would you say, of modern church architecture? They're, they're well-meaning. They're trying to do something good. But as you said, and, and I would agree, they haven't always succeeded. Why is that? Well, I think that in general, the West has, has separated itself from every kind of tradition, not just architectural tradition, but music, art, literature. And in the absence of these reliable rules, which people have observed for millennia, then you're falling back on just whatever, whichever way the wind blows in whatever art you're occupied in. So um, maybe an architect is coming through and he has some bright ideas, but they're not really rooted in anything. Yes. In fact, that was a little bit of the way I was educated in architecture school. The mm-hmm. question was never especially, is what you're designing good? It was, is what you're designing original and does it not look like what other people are doing? Uh-huh. And I think that harks back to the West's struggle right now with making too much out of the individual and not enough out of the collective good. So if an architect is designing a church and he's been educated to instinctively do something which will leave his mark, this is a church designed by Harry Smith, a famous architect. Doesn't that kind of cut across the whole principle of Christian humility? Well, it does, and I think even for an architect who's not Christian or not even practicing in a Christian context, it cuts across the role of an architect who is intended, the way I look at it, to be a servant to his society. In other words, you go to a doctor because you're sick, and you can't fix what your problem is, so you go to this professional. You can't fix your toilet. You get the plumber. You can't design your building. You Mm -hmm. get the architect. That's not his opening to exert his uniqueness upon the client. It's to help the client solve his problem. you feel that the architect's role is to not only serve his client, but within the context of Christian architecture, to also serve the tradition. Yes. Society does not acknowledge the profession of architects in order that individuals can get what they want from an architect. It's so that society gets what it wants from the architect. Right. Going back to the question which I was discussing at the beginning of the program, what is a church actually for? As a Catholic, what would you say to an architect who was designing a church? What would you tell him the church is for? I would say that what a church is for is to be God's house. In other words, it is an extension of the meeting tent where God dwelled with his people. Mm -hmm. And of course, his tent was much nicer than the other tents. And today, God still dwells with us, and he dwells with us in a Catholic church, and and especially not just only spiritually as he did in the meeting tent, but of course, since Jesus Christ came, he dwells with us physically in the Catholic church as well. Okay, so... Some people who are non-Catholic might say that the function of a church building is it's basically a preaching hall. Yes. Many of the churches I do, we refer to that main space as an auditorium. As an auditorium, right, as a listening place. Yes. Whereas the Catholic concept is not so much that we're going to a community listening place in order to hear God's Word, 
Instead, this is God's house, and we are approaching the threshold of holiness. We're approaching the threshold of the temple, and it's almost a secondary purpose or even a tertiary purpose that, oh, by the way, it should have pews in and a pulpit and a sound system so that everybody can hear the homily. Yes, and those things have to do with that use of God's house to have Mass, Mm -hmm. but the full-time use of the building is to be God's dwelling among his people. Right, so if you're going to make a dwelling place for the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, that's why we want to make it look nice. Yes, man has always saved his best architecture for God. Right. Going back to the idea that when you go in a Catholic church, it's going to look splendid because it's God's dwelling place, not for us. It's not so we can go in and say, oh, look, isn't that pretty marble? And look at that nice stained glass. And uh, isn't that a beautiful fresco up there? We've beautified it because it's God's house. It's his dwelling place. And therefore, it's not superfluous. In other words, it's part of the function. That's right. And I think that's just part of the normal human instinct when we deal with God that we are aspiring to do our best for him. Now, all of this costs money. How do you answer the people who come back and say, what are you building such a big, beautiful church for when there's poor people to be fed? Well, I tell people that the world has always been generous with God as well as trying to be generous with the poor. So it's not either or? No. I've been talking with Christian LeBlanc, who's a Catholic architect here in Greenville, South Carolina. He's actually the architect of record for the new church at Our Lady of the Rosary Parish, where I'm pastor. Christian, the last thing I'd like to discuss with you is what are the qualities that a building needs in order for the building itself to be beautiful? The sort of things that you would look for in a Catholic church that would resonate well with a human being who is walking in and expecting to be persuaded without words that this is indeed God's house and certain behaviors are expected from you would be it's sturdy. It looks like it will last for a long time. Its design is detached enough from the current architectural currents such that as it gets old, it doesn't look dated. Mm -hmm. That's one of the charm of old buildings is that it's not that they don't look old, it's that they don't look dated. Mm-hmm. And there are other little rhythms that would apply to any kind of building to make it attractive, is you, you repeat certain elements maybe eight times, ten times. You look up, there's a certain response of the way the ceiling works to the way the walls work. As far as geometric proportions, people don't really pick up on them on those things, as we talked about earlier, but they know they know where they are. Most of what people are looking for is a sense of permanence, mm-hmm. in that same sense that God does not change, God has always been the way he is, you would like to walk into a church and feel like the church may have been here already for uh, 200 years, 1,000 years, I can't really tell. It will probably be here another 1,000 years. Other people will come in here and worship and feel this way and feel closer to God and be in God's house in the same way I am. And that continuity extends not just to the building, but to the people who stretch off into the future and the people who stretch off into the past. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and you've been listening to More Christianity, the program where we explore the fullness of the faith in the Catholic Church. My guest today has been Catholic architect Christian LeBlanc. We've been talking about what makes a church beautiful, what makes a church functional, and what a church is actually for. Christian, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Father Longenecker. It was very diverting.